the AWS for Software Companies podcast, episode 20, Leveraging Kubernetes for AI and ML Workloads with Amreth Chandrasahar of Informatica, Ulfar Erlingson of Lacework, Murthy Thurumali of Pure Storage, and Barry Cooks of AWS. Well, hello, everyone, and Welcome back to the AWS for Software Companies podcast, where we speak to software leaders around the world about their journeys to the cloud, overcoming obstacles, and the role that Amazon Web Services play in their success. Today, we share a fascinating roundtable discussion with several software industry leaders on how their organizations leverage Kubernetes for their AI and ML workloads, as well as sharing lessons learned from their experience. So why don't we... uh kick things off a little bit about where we're seeing trends uh, on, on our side of the fence. And it's always great to, to have people actually using our products around to d- dive deep and we'll, we'll get into some details of what's working, what's not working, where things are, are used. Um, some of the things we're seeing, obviously, um, you can't throw a stick without hitting somebody who's talking about AIML these days. It is clearly the place where we are seeing huge amounts of workload uh, coming into AWS, people trying to build out their own models trying to do training, trying to do inference. I think a lot of people got spooked in the early days of shared large language models because a lot of information was appearing that they didn't realize would just appear. uh, And and some of that was pretty um, proprietary in in a number of cases. And so what you've seen is this expansion of lots of smaller large language models, which kind of sounds funny when you say it, um, and, and very specific use cases people are training for. So we do see a lot of that. And I thought it would be useful maybe to start with the panelists to talk a little bit uh, away from Kubernetes and just about the data itself. So when you look at the data that you're collecting, and all, because now everybody has these very, very rich data sets, how do you translate that data into something that's useful for your customers? Whether they be internal or external, what is the sort of the path from data to value to your customers? What do you see there? Informatica as such is a data management company. What we see now is a lot of customers are looking for more of a self-service approach, getting a lot, lot of these trends on how uh, their data is being used in terms of like you know metering, in terms of the analytics side of things. So these are the trends that we see, and, and also now there's a lot of compliance, governance, regulatory things that's going around the world. Uh, so we, we see a lot of challenges on, on these things, and we see companies getting into these standards. Yeah, so these are some of the things that we see. So Lacework is a security monitoring company for cloud assets, for cloud operations, and so on. The final value to the customer is really massive data reduction. So we're taking in tens of gigabytes per second, and we're emitting basically maybe 10 alerts per day for our customers. So, so that's sort of the data reduction. And those alerts are something we, the customer probably wants to look at. And, and so we have, you know, at least seven of those are things that they definitely wanted to hear about. And, and sort of we struggled to deal with the other three. So, and in this, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of aspects to this. And, uh, you know, locality of data processing, for instance, we don't want, uh, you know, want to use spot instances. We want to use, like, uh, containers. And, you know, things should be ephemeral. There are diurnal cycles. There is actually within an hour there are cycles. So, uh, so you have, like, more load here and there. And the data flows... Uh, via S3 for the most part, and databases uh, for the second part, but then also through these processing nodes. So 
It's a long journey. It's a data reduction journey. We uh, are actually proud of our use of Red Panda, which is a Kafka implementation, which is sort of where the data typically starts off being durable. And then it sort of gets slowly and slowly into more expensive and uh, sort of more tra transactional data storage systems. Maybe I'll use some examples from our customers. Uh, one of the largest financial companies uh, in the world uses us for uh, fraud detection. And so they're kind of querying uh, and, and uh, starting with just straight queries, but now I, th I think adding on a bunch of ML and eventually kind of moving on to AI as a way of doing fraud detection in real time. Another uh, recent example is a very, very large retailer who's using us to do shopping cart predictions on their shopping cart workflow. A third one, uh, it, it, this is in Europe, is uh, a, a company that's using us to do trading predictions for their traders. Uh, and so that's uh, another common example of the use of uh, data. Uh, so we also have a recent win with a connected car company. So they're using kind of the the various uh, you know, data that they collect. Actually, they kind of you see all these cars that are driving around, especially if you live in the Bay Area, and all of that data is, is sent back to a central place, and then the algorithms are updated. So the, the, the algorithms for that connected car stuff is updated and then run on a series of containers uh, that are then kind of you know, uh, updated again when they, uh, with, the, with the car models as they use them for the next few updates and so on. So connected cars are examples. So there's tons and tons of examples of where stateful applications, where data needs to be processed along a pipeline, uh, and then we provide sort of an underlay of having that data resilience as they go through and, and provide consistent high availability. And so those are many examples that we've seen. Yeah, so stateless was always the thing with Kubernetes, and, and I think this transition into stateful is being driven in, in a lot of ways by, by this heavy use of data and uh, driving towards ML. Let's talk about how it's constructed. Like, how are you actually using Kubernetes? What are the things, the pieces that you've had to put together? Where have you, where are you happy, where are you not happy? Uh, you know, what, what are the challenges you faced as you've tried to leverage it as a platform? So building that platform, right, so the ML platform for creating the developer experience, for training the model, for evaluating the model, for inference, for serving the model. So that is a foundational aspect for creating that developer experience. So we created, we worked with AWS extensively on using the open source solutions like Kubeflow, KSERV, to run on our EKS workloads to create that framework. But that is when we started building the ML models. Then when LLMs came along, then we transitioned into using like fast API and other things to run LLM models. Fast API is very similar to Tango or uh, you know other Flask, like how, how you serve the applications. It's pretty similar to that. We use Fast API to serve the LLM models. So that is the new thing that came along. So you see all along that there's been a different trend when you know things catch up. And some of the challenges that we run into is a lot of these are new technology. So it is really hard to find support or issues and things to come along. And LLMs are massive, like you rightly pointed out, it's huge. And, you know, a lot of research and optimization that goes along. And there are several optimization techniques that is available. So our team worked extensively on quantization and a lot of these things to reduce the amount of compute resources that is required to run these models internally. We've been successful 
by you know saving cost by 10x on on using these quantization efforts but that is just you know beginning on running uh, these llms on our own infrastructure now training these models itself is hard a lot of the cost spent is on training and inferencing these i mean training these models inferencing is probably you can predict it easily but the amount of iteration that goes through is creating that pipeline is like on a very average day there like at least like 500 plus pipeline runs that happens to train our models to evaluate different llm and ml models all these things run today on our eks workload so getting into you know a, a smaller scale and into a scale where we are it's been a, a lot of these challenges and things one key part that i missed is you know the model observability uh, side of things so observability is a very key component that is needed whenever we are training these models and things and we have integrated that with you know the different models that runs in kubernetes the pipelines and getting that you know dashboard view of these model observability is very key aspects yeah yeah so uh, i'll start with the good on kubernetes it's really good at what it's good at and so it's designed for sort of serving out requests in a uh, fault tolerant reliable way and uh, so for those purposes microservices in general it's just great and and we've been very successful with that uh, the uh, places where we've struggled and we've actually gotten in the last half year a lot of help from the data on EKS team and managed to figure out really good ways of solving things is sort of in these data pipelines and this data platform that we provide to our own engineers internally very similar to what you were talking about and there is a great paper from about 5 6 years ago about machine learning the high interest rate credit card of technical debt so with data pipelines you want to really easily build them test them monitor and retire them and so on but then they also they sort of tend to accumulate cruft and you have to tweak things here and 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 so on and kubernetes is just not designed for that like this is not what kubernetes is but we are running pretty much exclusively on kubernetes so we have to figure out how do we put our own scheduling system our own workload management and so on we have these custom resource descriptors or spark we have our own spark drivers i believe uh, is the right terminology and so on so basically we've had to uh, implement a lot of things and also with these data pipelines in machine learning you probably have five or six different tool sets that people want to be using there's the guys that want to be writing you know in jax and there's the ones that want to be writing in pytorch and and so you have all these different pipelines and many of them like spark for instance they're sort of finicky to tune right and uh, having a uniform platform that can actually serve out all of these different use cases is still what i would say a, a growth area for kubernetes i think kubernetes is a good platform for that but it's it's a good promise for a platform it's not a good platform for it yet but it, we can build something on there you know everybody knows kubernetes as a orchestrator of containers but it really is so much more right there's been extensions of kubernetes uh, as kubernetes has grown extensions that are sort of uh, you know originated inside of the cncf community but as an example csi is a, is a is an extension to manage storage cni is an extension to manage networking kubevert is an extension to manage compute so i think of this as the second coming of kubernetes essentially it has gone well beyond being an orchestrator of just containers into being an orchestrator of infrastructure 
Now you might think now, why would you want to do that? And why customers want to do that is because they want to kind of provide that fully automated self-service paradigm for the whole platform as a service, not just for the container and, and microservice part. And so most of what we've seen is customers deploying uh, their microservices in containers, and then they're bringing their storage underneath Kubernetes, their networking underneath Kubernetes, and using these extensions and plugins to Kubernetes like Portworx, what they can then do is essentially turn to their developer community and allow them to provision the whole application uh, requirement. So our customers would be able to provide, for example, uh, say that, hey, I'm deploying uh, an application here. It happens to use Kafka uh, or Postgres. I need to kind of assign, you know, so much storage, 30 terabytes, take snapshots ever so often, back it up once a day, and then do all of that using a JSON manifest within the Kubernetes kubectl command set. So I think the current form of, of the use of Kubernetes is really as a very complete platform, uh, allowing it to manage not just the application, but also the associated infrastructure with overlays that leverage and act as sort of a virtualization layer on top of existing infrastructure that they already own. And they don't have to kind of go out and buy and provision new infrastructure. So for example, we have a lot of deployments on EKS that, that allow us to leverage the underlying EBS and S3 and all of that and, and, and allow that to be managed now by a developer in a self-service model. Self-service is really kind of the modern DevOps mantra, right? I mean, that's kind of what people want is to be able to kind of provide some kind of guardrails and then within those guardrails, the developer has full freedom to do what they want. And that's really this, this uh, formation of this new IDP model that Barry was talking about. It's the platform engineering uh, concept. And, and one of the key kind of uh, anchors for that is the use of Kubernetes. So if you uh, jump in the, the Wayback Machine and you could sort of smack your former self around a little bit, uh, when you look at where things are with your systems today, what would you absolutely say was a great decision and one you would recommend anybody here doing it do? And what would you absolutely say, you know, that didn't work out quite the way we want and we own it forever now uh, and, and wish we could have done that one differently. What, uh, what are your sort of top wins and biggest regrets? Top wins are, uh, so when uh, we, we migrated our, you know, observability solutions from you know, SaaS to in-house because our log and metric and traces growth were like a lot. So we incorporated operators, like Kubernetes operators. Um, so they are, and we, we used uh, some of the solutions like Elastic, who use the ECK operators. So that uh, helped us to scale out our, our systems. So we started off at a pretty small scale. Now we are ingesting close to like 50 plus terabytes of data and the petabyte scale infrastructure. The scaling of the things is, uh, and maintaining the state of all these containers, because all these are stateful sets, and you know we need to run and store hundreds of containers with petabytes of provision storage. And the operators, Kubernetes operators, helps in a, a lot, lot of ways to optimally run these. And it is able to take care of the state of these systems. If anything goes down, rebalancing, sharding, all these things has been uh, taken care by um, by these. So that's one good thing to start off with 
the good good things that you know we are able to achieve some of the challenges that run into is is on the capacity planning side of things when you run into a newer instance types and things that comes along you know we got to be a much more calculative careful have uh, a provisioned uh, storage we were like early adopters of graviton 3 or you know m6i and things we have we moved a lot of our workloads in, into these the newer processors that gives us a lot of more throughput and compute and cost as well obviously and the capacity planning aspects of it is very important when you do production releases when you do a migration efforts or you know a peak load you have to scale out you got to be more careful while choosing those different processors or instance types i would say uh, for that so those are some of the challenges in those aspects yeah i'd, I'd say the the biggest win and and the biggest problem is is actually both kubernetes so i'll start with why kubernetes is a win uh it really helps us uh sort of have a consistent and easy to operate control plane for everything that we're doing we don't have to have multiple sre teams we're being for market reasons being forced to actually we mostly run on aws but we also have to run certain customer workloads in other data centers because of kubernetes we can do that in a way that doesn't force us to learn all the other cloud provider stuff and so on uh get a lot of leverage out of simple things like tilt. Now I don't know if people have used tilt, but you can basically tilt up an entire Kubernetes container-based environment on your development machine and voila, you have an entire little cluster and uh you can make sure everything works the way it's supposed to before you try to push it through CI CD etc. And of course the development machine might actually be living in the cloud itself, so uh it's kind of recursive, but uh Kubernetes basically is an essential part of us being able to manage we have uh almost uh, a 1000 different customers and each customer has multiple workloads there's a long ziffian tail so uh some of these are ridiculously huge like top 3 AWS customers our customers also uh and some are tiny and we have to actually have the same thing applied to all of them stamping out these environments and so on It'd be a nightmare without Kubernetes and the reason kubernetes is kind of uh a a the biggest regret and failure is uh as uh people were starting to use containers we actually started off on on mesos uh and people were so enamored with uh microservices that we built some distributed monoliths now i don't know if what people know here what a distributed monolith is but it's basically a set of distributed systems where no single distributed system has any reason to live on its own so all of their data contracts are completely matched with another distributed system and usually they don't even like own their own data it's sitting in some shared storage and so on and yeah boy we built some of those and it's really hard once you've built your entire pipelines in this distributed way to uh sort of roll back and come back to a coherent much simpler architecture so a, a distributed monolith is really a system that should be one big binary and like think like a database and uh but it happens to have been exploded out into like 100 little uh processes that all could fail on their own and have to have so so we have some of those and that's totally a mistake that anybody that goes whole hog into kubernetes is likely to make uh it's just like microservices are good for certain things please read up on it before you start using them at scale 
worst decision was to try and run a, a KVDB externally and uh, you know run it on a separate server. Invariably, people would uh, would would not manage it well and have uh, bring it down. Have all kinds of things. I think bringing it underneath our own Kubernetes cluster management system was was one of the best uh, was one of the, the changes we made. Best decision is very very simple. It's running databases inside of Kubernetes. So we've uh, now graduated so much uh, with our customers deploying things like you know Postgres, Cassandra, Kafka, any data service you can imagine. And so we've gone to the point where now we've just launched a, a product called Portworx Data Services that essentially takes containerized versions of databases and brings them under the control of Kubernetes. And uh, just that's one more thing that you manage within Kubernetes and now customers uh, or developers can self-provision anything they want. If they want to deploy a Couchbase thing, we just have an operator model, uh, you're, you know, which has sort of the right CRDs that you were describing earlier. And so uh, we, we can deploy Kafka, Conf, uh, anything, Mongo, uh, Postgres, uh, everything within uh, Kubernetes and therefore now uh, I'm a visual guy, so I'll kind of show it to you visually, right? If you think of a very fast fabric of containers that are coming and going, containers are being spawned as more users come on or as more uh, services come on, but you have this static uh, and siloed infrastructure, and so it's very, very hard without a ticketing system to keep up with the requirements of the containers. What we've done essentially is by bringing all of this under control of Kubernetes now, all of this is equally fast and it's sort of the two move together. If you know the storage moves uh, with virtual volumes, the DR is provided, databases are available when you need them and they're all provisioned in real time with auto scale. So that sort of elastic infrastructure to match your elastic container fabric is sort of the benefit of, of that design. And so just uh, uh, awesome architecture to be able to manage your apps and data together underneath Kubernetes. So bit of a tour of, of what people are up to in Kubernetes. Hopefully this was a, a useful exercise in, in kind of how people are leveraging things, what we're seeing, what you all have learned uh, through some heavy use and, and real world examples. Uh, appreciate everybody's time. Thanks again for listening to the AWS for Software Companies podcast. For more conversations with global software leaders, subscribe to this podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please feel free to share these episodes on LinkedIn or other social media. Thanks again for listening.